The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. In preparing for this episode, it occurred to me that some of the grand ands we've talked about are more topical or or maybe we could say descriptive, like heaven and earth or Jew and Gentile. These pairs of words set up a contrast between two related topics. On the other hand, we've looked at some grand ands with a deep meaning in the very words themselves. For example, grace and peace come to mind. Both the Old Testament Hebrew words and the New Testament Greek words have important significance in their meaning. Another pair that with deep meaning is Lord and Savior. Examples like these show that the words themselves are what make it a grand and. Guess what? We've got another pair of words today that has deep meaning and significance. And I think you could probably make a case that they're among the deepest meaning and of the greatest significance of all the grand ands that we've talked about so far. By the end of this episode, let's see if you agree. We're going to look first at the individual words before we look at how they are used together. So let's start with truth. The Old Testament Hebrew word translated as truth is kind of fascinating. The word is pronounced emet. It's three letters long. The first letter is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second letter is the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And you guessed it, the third letter is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, if we were doing this with the English alphabet, the word would be spelled A-M-Z. But in English, A-M-Z is not an official word. Uh, But on some social media sites, a few people use it to declare something to be amazing. Anyway, back to Amet. The word itself, comprised of its first, middle, and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, suggests that this word does not mean a truth, or this truth, or that truth, or my truth, or your truth. The word means the whole truth, from beginning to end, from A to Z. It's a word that says there is one truth. If you've ever had to testify in a courtroom, the concept of having a whole truth is right there in the witness oath. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? There is something else about this word emet that's interesting. I remember reading an article once, and I'm sorry I don't remember where I read it. Probably have to Google it. In this article, a Jewish rabbi explained the symbolism of emet. Did you know that the letters of the Hebrew alphabet also double as numbers? For example, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. It is also the number one, which, by the way, is a number symbolic of God, of Yahweh. This symbolism is based on Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In college, this was the first verse I ever memorized in Hebrew. 
Shama Yisrael Adonai, Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Come to think of it, I think it's the only verse I ever memorized in Hebrew, or at least the only one I can remember. Now, this Jewish rabbi also pointed out that if you take away the first letter in emet, you are left with the word, obviously, met. And in Hebrew, met means death. His point was that if you take away God from truth, all you have left is death. It's an interesting observation that equates Yahweh with the truth, the whole truth, the A to Z truth. Another passage in the Old Testament that equates Yahweh with truth is from Psalm 25, where the psalmist says, Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. There's a third interesting aspect of the word emet. It's a Hebrew word that also means faithful or faithfulness or trustworthiness. I think you can probably see how those definitions complement the word truth. Truth is something you can count on. Truth is faithful and trustworthy because the one from whom the real truth originates, namely Yahweh, is himself faithful and true. Now, in the New Testament Greek language, the primary word for truth, aletheia, pretty much equates with the definition of our English word for truth. The word occurs 110 times in the New Testament and refers to the facts, to that which is real, that which is certain, that which actually happened, something that's undisputable. Truth is the opposite of a lie or a falsehood or fiction or a myth. Did you know that the Apostle John wrote about truth more than any other New Testament author? In his gospel, there are 30 verses where he references truth. And in the three letters he wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, there are another 17. One of the more familiar passages that speaks about truth is in John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. To be a follower of Jesus means sticking with Jesus and his teaching. Jesus is the Word, as we learn from John chapter 1. He's the revelation of God to this world of ours. So when we stick with Jesus and his teaching, we have the truth, and that truth sets us free. Just do the math. Jesus plus his words equal the truth. The truth plus our holding to it, believing it, equals freedom. Later in his ministry, Jesus made his connection with truth just crystal clear. He told his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth and the only way to God. Just as in the Old Testament, truth equates with Yahweh, so also in the New Testament, truth equates with Jesus. Now, you've heard people talk about relative truth, haven't you? You know, they say, what's true for you might not be true for me or You've got your truth, I've got mine. Well, let me tell you that from the Bible's perspective and use and meaning of the word truth, there is no such thing as relative truth. 
There is only one truth, God's truth, and he owns it. So now let's take a look at love. In our English language, we use the one word love in many different and diverse ways. Let me give you an example by making three statements that all start out with the words, I love, but each one expresses very different kinds of love. Here we go. I love Texas style barbecue. Number two, I love working with my coworkers at time of grace. And three, I love my wife, Linda. Each of these kinds of love is very different, yet we use the same English word for each. The ancient languages of Hebrew and Greek use different words for different kinds of love. In Hebrew, there are three primary words for love. The first one, ahab, is a spontaneous, impulsive love. It occurs frequently in the Old Testament, uh, about 250 times. This word is used to describe human love for another person. It includes love among family as well as the sexual love between a husband and wife. It is used when describing love for such things as food, drink, sleep, and so on. It's also used to describe a person's love for God. Here's an example from Genesis 22 where God is speaking to Abraham. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Here it's used as the love of family. A second Hebrew uh, word for love is raham. This word refers to a compassionate kind of love. In our English translations of the Bible, it is frequently translated as compassion, not as love. Here's an example from Exodus 33 when Yahweh revealed himself to Moses. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion, Raham, on whom I will have compassion. A third Hebrew word for love is hesed. This is a special and deep kind of love. It occurs about 250 times in the Old Testament. It's a love that expresses a deliberate choice of affection and kindness. It's a word used to describe an essential part of God's character. Hesed is uh, an amazing grace kind of love. Here's an example from Exodus 34. And he, talking about God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, that's Raham, and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, Hesed, and faithfulness, maintaining love, Hesed, to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God's relationship with his people results in his amazing love and faithfulness, even when his people are unfaithful to him. God loves unconditionally. That's Hesed love. The Greek language also has three main words for love, but only two of them are found in the New Testament. The first word is eros, from which we get our English word erotic. And now, if you know your Greek mythology, you'll remember that the Greek god of love and desire was named Eros. The word Eros reflects an impulsive kind of love, a love that centers on one's senses. It's a I love Texas style barbecue kind of love. 
It appeals to the senses. It's also the word for sexual love. And by the way, this is the word that doesn't occur anywhere in the New Testament. A second Greek word for love is philia. This is primarily a love for friends, family, one's spouse, and children. This kind of love is sometimes called brotherly love, or sister love, or familial love, love of family. An example of this was when Mary and Martha, who were friends of Jesus, sent word to him about their brother Lazarus being sick. The message Jesus received was, Lord, the one you love is sick. The third Greek word for love is agape. Agape is a selective and exclusive love for something or someone, sometimes referred to as unconditional love. It's the predominant word for love in the New Testament, occurring over 250 times. Yet, get this, in secular Greek literature, agape is rarely used. Why do you think that is? Here's my thought. Could it be that the default attitude about love is not to think of the needs of others first? I say this because to love people with an agape love means to see their need and then to meet that need. That's exactly the kind of love God showed us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves us with an agape love. He saw our spiritual need and met that need through his Son, Jesus. Now, I want to share two other New Testament passages about agape love to uncover a connection, a thread between truth and love. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. To love God and others is a command, a truth of God. And the second passage is this. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Here we see that love and truth are linked together. The words law and commandment in these verses are synonymous with God's truth. When we show a hesed slash agape kind of love, we are living out God's truth. And then Jesus takes this to a whole new level when he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So when was the last time you prayed for people who want to hurt you? I'll admit it. It hasn't been high on my prayer list. But Jesus calls on us to pray like that. These two verses are examples of a connection or thread between truth and love. Let's look at another one. This one is from the Apostle John's second letter. It's the second shortest book in the Bible, only 245 words long in the original Greek text. 
it starts out the elder to the lady. Okay, let's stop there. The elder refers to the author, John. He wrote this letter near the end of his life. He was getting to be an old man. And he was writing it to the lady. Now, this could have been a female leader in the church, but more likely the lady refers to the church itself because the content of the letter seemed to be directed at a group of people. Now, symbolizing the church as a female person isn't unusual. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were called by various female names. A virgin, a mother, a married woman, even, even a widow. The believers who lived in the Old Testament city of Jerusalem were called daughter of Zion. And in the New Testament, Jesus referred to himself as a bridegroom and his followers as his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul described the church in feminine terms. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church. Okay, back to John's letter. The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. There are a couple of insights worth noting from John's letter. John says he has great joy because some of the church were walking in the truth. Now, walking in God's truth is what God expects of us, right? So what do you make of John being joyful that just some of the members of the church were walking in the truth? That suggests that others weren't. So is the glass of truth walkers half full or half empty? John chooses to see it as half full, that some were walking in the truth, and that was a good thing. But there's another insight here. Although some were walking in the truth, John seems to suggest that there was an absence of people walking in love. In a gentle way, John reminded them of a command of God that they seemed to have forgotten. John wrote, I ask that we love one another. Apparently, they hadn't been. Remember, this is John's second letter. Back in his first letter, John explained the relationship between God and agape love. He wrote, Dear friends, let us agape one another, for agape comes from God. Everyone who agapes has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not agape does not know God, because God is agape. So, where does love come from? from God. He is the source of love. Just like truth equates with God, so also love equates with God. 
There's one more section I want to take a look at. It's from Ephesians chapter 4. The chapter starts out with Paul calling for unity. He speaks about the body of Christ, the church, and the various gifts given to build up the church. Paul's prayer is that followers of Jesus don't stay spiritual infants because such infants are at risk of being influenced by false teachers. He wants them all to become spiritually mature. And then comes the key verse about how to become spiritually strong. He writes, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. I sometimes think we think of truth and love as being two separate qualities, independent of each other. That's not how the Bible treats them. I think the author and pastor Phil Johnson makes a really good point about this. He wrote in a blog, The symbiotic relationship between love and truth is essential. Authentic love rejoices with the truth. Love without truth has no character. Truth without love has no power. When separated from one another, either virtue is nothing more than a mere pretense. Love deprived of truth deteriorates into self-love. Truth divorced from love breeds self-righteousness. That's from Phil Johnson. What comes first in your mind, truth or love? I'd like to suggest that we don't think of truth and love as linear or chronological, but rather as circular. Love informs truth, truth informs love. It's a circle, not a line. I also like what Tim Keller says about the relationship of truth and love. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about all our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. Tim Keller. Truth and love, it's a never-ending circle in the Christian's life. It's also one of the grand ands of the Bible. It's an and that begins with God and influences our every thought and action. If you would like to see a practical example of how truth and love intersect, I'd like to suggest a book written by Pastor Mike Novotny, and it's on a hot social topic. The book is called Gay and God. The subtitle, though, tells you Pastor Mike's approach. Loving everyone God made and everything God wrote. Love and truth. You can order this book from the Time of Grace store at timeofgrace.org. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for another episode from our Bible Thread series entitled The Grand Ands of the Bible. God bless.